find the book of Romans. There was an article that was published in June 2013 on a study that was done by Larry Taunton and his team. A pretty unique study. What they actually did is they had a nationwide campaign where they were interviewing students that were college students that were a part of an atheist group on campus, okay? So they went and found all these young atheists, found out where they were at, and pretty interesting, the information that they learned. Overwhelmingly, this was one of the consensus themes, and that is these unbelievers, they often expected but didn't find more spiritual depth from their Christian neighbors. That overwhelmingly found that Christians don't have a whole lot of depth to them. In fact, uh, these atheists, a lot of these students, these young atheists actually went and attended at different times, would go to churches, and they would go specifically because they had difficult questions, and they wanted to have real, solid answers about faith. Some of them uh, hoped to find answers about personal significance, purpose, and ethics, so they found themselves going to churches, and let me tell you what they concluded, these young atheists. They often concluded that church services and Christians were largely shallow, harmless, and ultimately irrelevant. They'd come looking for answers, and it didn't seem like anybody could supply them. They couldn't find depth. They couldn't find maturity. They couldn't find people or pastors or churches that could give them real answers to the questions they faced. And so their conclusion is most of these folks and churches and what takes place on Sunday morning is largely irrelevant. Something else that was really fascinating from this study is that these young atheists did express, however, respect for those churches who took the Bible seriously. In fact, one of these guys, his name is Michael, he's a political science major from Dartmouth, and he said this, quote, I really can't consider a Christian a good moral person if he, doesn't try, if he isn't trying to convert me. Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life, and you would want to change the lives of others, and listen to this, I haven't seen too much of that. I haven't seen that. I'm looking for it, but frankly, that's not existing to a, a real high level in the Christian community. We all say that being a Christian, knowing Christ, knowing the gospel, that will truly change your life. Isn't that what we say? I mean, that's the party line, right? We're supposed to, yeah, that's right. We'll say that. We'll check. I'll make an assent to that. But is that really the reality? What does it look like when your life is set apart to Christ and his gospel? Well, the book of Romans actually shows us in great detail what it means to really know Christ and be set apart to his gospel. And I'll tell you what it looks like. I'm going to give it to you in three major ways it shows up. First of all, you're going to see that you're having a devotion. You're going to be devoting your lives to Christ. If you really know him, you truly have been saved by his gospel, there is going to be an outgrowing development of being devoted to Christ. The whole idea that, yeah, I believe the gospel, but I'll pretty much put Jesus on the shelf, and I'll, I'll consult with him or pray with him when things get really bad, but for the most part, I'm going to run my own life. That's not biblical Christianity. So look at Paul. He actually, as he begins this letter, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. We're going to find out as we go through this book 
what it really looks like to know Christ and the transformation he, be, he brings. And it begins by him actually bringing a true devotion to Christ. Notice what Paul refers to himself. He refers to himself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Now, we know Paul. Um, there's been a lot of study. There's a lot of uh, press about him in the New Testament. He was born in Tarsus, uh, which is one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire. He was born into a wealthy Jewish home. So he had the privilege of not only being highly educated in Roman ways, understood their ethics, the things that were important to them, but he was also Jewish, and he studied under one of the top rabbis in Israel, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. He was highly educated. He came from a wealthy home. He understood both Greek culture and he, uh, Roman culture as well as what Jewish culture. And it is fascinating. This guy who saw himself as the great persecutor of the church, he thought, I'm going to protect God's name and I'll do it by destroying these people, these Christians who say that Jesus is the Messiah. And sure enough, that's what he did. In fact, one time when he was on his, making his way up to Damascus for another uh, time to pull away families, destroy them, and see people get killed, God confronts him and the person of Jesus Christ literally knocks him blind and brings him to a place of great humility where he actually begins to see Jesus for who he really is. It's really interesting. God uses our experiences, even prior to knowing Christ, for his glory and his service. Don't think that if he came to Christ later in life like, oh, everything else will be on there, that, that doesn't matter, and God can't use that. Actually not. That's not true. He does. He specializes in redemption. And Paul sees himself as a bondservant, literally a slave of Christ. There were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. And these slaves in the Roman Empire, they basically served involuntarily. They'd been captured in war, and their life was oftentimes miserable. Not always, but oftentimes. Paul says, I see myself as a servant of Christ. Completely different. I do this willful, willingly and voluntarily. It is a joy to serve him. And I and that's because he sees Jesus for who he is. And when you see him for who he is, it brings about a devotion to your life. And he says, I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus. I've been called as an apostle. See, he has, actually has an official position. In order to be an apostle, two things had to take place in your life. You had to have seen the resurrected Christ, and you have had to have been commissioned by him as one of those who would lay the foundation for the church, okay? You don't, this, this whole modern idea, and every once in a while you see these people and they decide, they designate themselves or their church votes that they're going to be an apostle. Well, that's not in the New Testament. You actually had to have seen the risen Lord, have they? No. Were they commissioned by him? No. There were the original 12. Uh, you had Judas who dropped off. He commits suicide and his betrayal of Christ. Matthias is put in his place. And then you also have Paul. These are the ones that laid the foundation of the church. They're the ones that wrote the New Testament or they had people under their auspices write the New Testament. They laid the foundation for the church. Paul is saying, I'm writing to you in an official capacity as an apostle and I am set apart for the gospel of God. Now, you hear that word gospel, and you think like, that's a nice little Christian term. Actually, that term didn't belong to Christians exclusively. It literally means good news. Uh, The prophets in the Old Testament referred to the good news, that God would bring a deliverer, and he would intervene on on his people's behalf. Did you know the Romans used the word gospel? And they referred to the gospel oftentimes associated with the emperor, You see, the emperor, his birth, 
his life, his good deeds, they were seen as bringing good news or the gospel. So this guy, Emperor, the Emperor Augustus, uh, he obviously had a little head trip going on he, uh, in 9 BC when he actually has this decree that goes out. And he says that it was the beginning for the world of good news. You know what he was referring to? His birth. And so the emperor the, in Rome, they saw themselves as having a gospel. They had good news. And they thought it was associated with their emperor and that this emperor could bring the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was a bloody peace, but they could kind of control folks. What Paul is saying here is, I am, called apart, and I'm, I am called an apostle, and I'm set apart for the gospel of God. God's good news that is centered on a person. You see, when you see Jesus for who he is, it brings a devotion to your life. That's why he sees himself as set apart for the good news of God, which, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God promised in the Old Testament that he would send a Messiah, a deliverer, an anointed one, who would literally pay the penalty for his people's sins. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, and they obeyed and listened to the serpent, and they disobeyed and disregarded what God had to say? When God comes in and addresses the situation after Adam and Eve had now plunged humanity into sin, God said to the serpent, I am, through the seed of this woman, through her progeny, I will have one that will literally crush your head. I will destroy you. And it was a promise of a coming one, of Jesus, who would do just that. He would eventually put an end to the kingdom of Satan and to even Satan himself. But the gospel, uh, also, you can find it, you can see it in the, as you go through the Old Testament. You see a promise like in Isaiah chapter 1 or in 53, there is going to be one who is pierced through for our transgressions. There's one who's actually going to pay for our iniquity. There's one who is actually going to bring us to himself by cleansing us from our sins. All of this is promised, and Paul says, this gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, and it is in the word. It is a fulfillment. And notice who Jesus is. It is concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, the gospel, and specifically knowing Christ, isn't about how you can receive self-actualization or how you can be more fulfilled in life or Jesus can help you fulfill your dreams. The gospel is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he says, verse 3, concerning his son who is fully human. See that in verse 3? Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. He is fully human. You need to understand that. He is promised in the Old Testament scriptures, and he is going to come through the seed of a woman. And just something you need to know, Christianity is not a contradiction of Judaism. Christianity is the completion of Judaism. Promised in the Old Testament, there is a coming one, and there are explicit prophecies so that when Jesus appears and he starts fulfilling them, the world would not miss, specifically the Jews would not miss, and it's concerning his son. And Paul says he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there is given a promise to King David? It is known as the Davidic covenant where God promises David that you are going to eventually have a son in your lineage 
who will have an eternal kingdom and will reign forever. And that is fulfilled in Jesus. You see both in Mary's line that she comes from the line of David, but even Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, do you know what line he comes from? He comes from the line of David, so that Jesus will have not only through birth and in his humanity come from the line of David, but he will legally be the son of David, and so he is the fulfillment of that. And that is fascinating how God is so specific that this one who is born a descendant of David according to the flesh, he's fully human, but he is also fully God. Look at verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see that word declared? We get our English word horizon from that. It is the demarcation line that divides earth and sky. You know, you see the horizon? And Jesus, specifically his resurrection, sets him apart from all humanity. This isn't saying that Jesus became God at the resurrection. That's actually not true. He has eternally been God. He is the self-existent one. But he entered into humanity about 2,000 years ago. He took on flesh and blood. We call it the incarnation. But he is fully God. And notice what the text says. He came, he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ authenticates to the world that he is God. And his resurrection shows that he is the Son of God, and that is a term used about 30 times in the Gospels. It always equals that he is referring to himself as God, that he is the one who is now set apart. He is the Son of God with power, meaning he is the one, like Philippians 2 says, that every knee is going to bow and confess as Lord. He is set apart to the, from the world, and God has shown that he is seating at the right hand of the Father and he is the Son of God with power. He is fully man, and he's fully God. That is who Jesus is. And so when he says, uh, according to the spirit of holiness, just like Jesus came according to the flesh, you say verse 3, he's fully human, according to the spirit of holiness, the sense that he is fully God, he is Jesus Christ our Lord. You see that? Jesus is his personal name. Christ speaks of his, that he is the anointed one, the promised Messiah, and he is Lord, Lord over all things, heaven and on earth. And our level of submission to Christ is based on our vision of him. How you see him affects how you live. If you have a limited view of Jesus, you don't really understand much about him, nor do you make any efforts to read the scriptures to know then you probably have a limited level of submission in your life. But the more you come to see him and his greatness and his power and who he really is, son of man, son of God, from the line of David, the resurrected one, reigning in power, you know what it results in? It results in an obedience and a life of joy, giving yourself over to him. And so Paul writes, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, we didn't make this up. God gives us the strength and our position, he says, to bring about, now here's an interesting phrase we don't actually say very often, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now, when he says obedience of faith, 
Does that mean that in order to become a Christian, you have to have faith, you have to believe, but you also have to obey? There are certain things that you need to do in order to become a Christian. Well, that is actually not true. You must believe. Your job in this is that you receive and you believe in Christ. And so obedience isn't a necessary ground to actually becoming a Christian. But you need to know this. There is an obedience that comes with faith. If you truly are trusting Christ and you've got your faith in him, there will be a growing obedience to him. You'll want to know more about him. You'll want to actually do what he says. In fact, he'll give you his spirit to actually accomplish what he asks, but there will be an obedience of faith, and that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I want to come and I want to help generate and develop this obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his glory. A 16th century reformer named Martin Luther said this, we are saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. When you believe, God is going to be bringing about a development of obedience in your life. And so he says, among whom, verse 6, you also are called of Jesus Christ. Now he's starting to tell them who they are. Because once you understand who you are in Christ, it starts to help you understand how you are to live. And he says, you also, you've been called of Jesus Christ. Literally, God has a sovereign call which he's drawn you to himself. And verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, you are dearly loved by God. You're called, you're set apart to him. And when we start to understand that, that changes how we live. We actually start to thrive in the context of an environment where we're truly, deeply loved by God. He says, I am writing to you who are beloved of God, verse 7, in Rome, called as saints. Now, I know the Roman Catholic Church says, oh, you've got to do two miracles, and you have to have a hundred-year gap, and we'll have a few saints. Actually, the New Testament teaches that when you put your faith in Christ, you are a saint. You are actually set apart to him. You're one of his holy ones. Not by virtue of the fact that you're wonderful and good, but by virtue of the fact that Christ is your Lord and has paid for your sins. He accomplished it all. And so he says, I am eager to come to you who are in Rome. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a word about Rome. It seems that the church in Rome gets started probably uh, with Pentecost. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, God promised, Jesus said, I want you to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came at, at the day of Pentecost, at, shortly after the resurrection of Christ, just as Jesus promised, the Spirit of God, in an amazing way, with, this, with fire and a loud thunderous sound, he actually comes upon those who are waiting for him, his apostles, his close associates, and they begin speaking in tongues. They begin speaking in other known languages, though they previously hadn't had the ability to do so. People from around the empire who had been gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, they hear this thunderous sound. This was obviously an earth-shaking activity. I mean, far more than when SpaceX is testing out their little rockets there. I mean, this was like, and like people are gathering, what in the world is going on? And here are these Galileans, and they now are speaking the praises of God, and they're doing so in other known languages, and they're like, what in the world? These are Galileans, which wasn't a great place to come from. They weren't considered highly educated. They're now speaking in other languages. We hear them doing so, and they're speaking the praises of God. How is it? And they start listing all the different parts of the empire that they came from, 
And Peter then gives a sermon. He says, this was prophesied, by the pro- this was made mention by Joel, and by the way, this is all meant for you to understand that this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord over all. And there were added to that day to the church about 3,000 souls, and they were baptized because they believed. Well, from that, there were people that were even from Rome, and it is likely that this is where the fledgling church begins in Rome. They make their way back to Rome. These are brand new Christians. They, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't have any of the New Testament writings. They don't have an apostle, and so the church gets started. It gets started likely with now these Jewish Christians. They come from a Jewish background. They would obviously be sharing Christ among other Jews, and they are even probably starting to reach out to Gentiles because they actually saw that this gospel is for all the world. It was one of the reasons why God actually has this event in Acts chapter 2 where they're speaking in these known languages throughout the empire. This gospel is for the world, not just for Jews. Now, they're in Rome, and there is an event that takes place that is well recorded in history. In fact, the Roman historian Suetonius, he records that the Roman emperor Claudius he actually expels all the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49. And it's over this issue, he writes, because of the strife over Christos. Okay? Now, Suetonius likely misunderstood Christos because the Latin name for Christ is Christos. And the reason that Claudia had all the Jews out of there is because some huge division and uproar was taking place because of this Christ. Some of these Jews are calling him the Messiah, and it was causing such a havoc for him. He expels the Jews out of, out of the uh, city of Rome. In fact, you even find this in Acts chapter 18, where these Jews are literally leaving Rome. He's not going to decide, are you a Christian? He doesn't even understand these issues. You're just causing a problem. I'm done with you. You're out of here. And so they are. So what takes place when Claudius dies in AD 54, some of these Jews start making their way back. But it starts, to, it tells you that Christ was having a significant influence in Rome. Now, if you've got the idea of Rome and you kind of got a little Disney World idea of it that is all perfect and beautiful, that's actually not the way it really was. They had some magnificent architecture. You got the Emperor's Palace, you got the Circus Maximus, you got the Forum. I mean, these are extremely impressive buildings. But most of Rome and the people in it lived in very squalid, slum-like conditions. If you were wealthy and rich, and you were a part of the elite, and you were a small minority, yeah, you lived in those cool little villas, and it was awesome. It was probably pretty sweet. But for everybody else, uh, most of these people were either slaves or had been freed. They were extremely poor. They gathered in ethnic uh, villages. So it's kind of like, imagine New York City in the 19th and 20th century. You gathered with those from the the country that you came from. And they actually almost became a law unto themselves and had their own little governments. There was all this vying. Who knows, maybe this is the start of the mafia, but they were, they had real issues and there was a lot of tension and there was a lot of problems that there was huge sanitation issues and they would live in these five to six story buildings that would often fall down. In Rome, they had their own urban firefighters. They also had police force that were always trying to deal with the problems because it was like It could at any time erupt all the conflict that was taking place. They had prostitutes that were legal. They actually had a license through the court. They dressed in such a way that everybody knew they were prostitutes, and they plied their trade. And it was a mess, so much so that the philosopher Seneca, when he writes of the city of Rome, he refers to it as a cesspool of iniquity. This is the greatest of the cities in the Roman Empire, Rome. The writer Juvenal, a Roman writer, refers to it, quote, as a filthy sewer into which the dregs of the empire flood. It is in this environment 
as bad as it gets, as wicked as it can be, that the gospel takes root because that's how God works. He is going to bring transformation among those who are significant sinners so that they might experience life cleansing found in Christ. And obviously the gospel is taking root so much so that Claudia is like, get these folks out of here. I don't, I don't want this kind of turmoil in my city. I got enough issues. And it is to Rome in about AD 56-57. Paul on his third missionary journey, he's residing in Corinth. It is at this time that he writes the letter of Romans and he explains the gospel in depth and the transformation that Jesus Christ brings. And so he says, grace and peace to you. You know, when the gospel of God is your gospel, you're set apart to him and it brings about a devotion, a devoting of your lives to Christ. Let me tell you something else that the gospel of God sets us apart for. And that is developing maturity among believers. Look at verse 8. First, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because of your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. What God is doing in your city is starting to be known throughout the whole empire. You need to think of Rome as kind of like Washington, D.C. You know, what happens in Washington, D.C., we're all familiar with it because it makes news. What happens in Waco? Not so much news. It's certainly not on the national level very often, which is probably good, right? But in Washington, D.C., man, it's public. That's how it was in Rome. What's going on in Rome is known throughout the empire. People are always coming and going from there. And Paul says, what God is doing in your midst, I am so thankful for because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. You believe in that cesspool of iniquity. Life is being changed. You're living differently. You're unafraid. You got courage. You got conviction. You're maturing and you're developing. And it's spreading throughout the whole world. And he says, verse 9, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Verse 10, Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God... I may succeed in coming to you. I want you to know, I've wanted to come to you for a long time. Paul is the apostle set apart to the Gentiles. And man, if you're an apostle set apart to the Gentiles, you're going to want to go to Rome, man. That is the heart of the Gentile world. Gentile meaning non-Jewish. And Paul says, man, every time I think of you, I pray for you. God is my witness. Now, I wish I could say that I got a prayer life like that. I'll, I'll give you one thing that I find to be helpful in developing my prayer life. And that is when God brings a person or a situation to mind, learn to pray. Whether it's in the middle of the night or the middle of the day, just pray about those things. Whatever you might know about it, bring that to God and bring your request before him. It seems that as a man who just was consumed with people wanting to know the goodness of Christ, especially among the Gentiles, that Rome was often in his thoughts and he was often praying. He says, I have wanted to come for a long time and maybe now. By the sovereign will of God, I'm going to be able to do just that. For he says, verse 11, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Man, I want to come because I want to give you a spiritual gift. That is, verse 12, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to give you a spiritual gift. This isn't that he's going to come and like he's going to give them some sort of spiritual enablements. Because once you come to Christ, you're actually filled with the Spirit. He actually does gift you for the service of others. But he's kind of like, if we want to give a financial gift to either folks in India or West or in the, at the Navajo Indian Reservation... That's a financial gift. Paul says, I want to give a spiritual gift. 
And he actually describes what that gift looks like. Look at verse 12. He says, verse 11, so that you may be established. And then he tells you, this is what I want to see happen. I want God to create an environment where we literally grow together in Christ. Verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to use my gifts, gift as an apostle, gifted to preach, gifted to pastor. I want to use it to encourage your faith in Christ. It's not about me. It's about Christ and Christ at work in your life. I want to do this. But do you notice what else he says? And I want to be encouraged by your faith. That's how it works in a church. It's not like, well, we got a, f- a couple guys that we've hired, and they're our hired guns, and they're supposed to make everybody happy, and you only come to church with the idea like, hey, what can I get out of this? And if you're not meeting my needs, I'll just kind of stay home or do something else. No. It's the idea that when the church is gathered, whether in a small group or a large group like when we come together right now, we're in it together to encourage one another, to sing songs of praise, to remind each other that Jesus is God and he is great and he is in our midst. And we need each other to encourage one another. Try this if you haven't. When you show up to involve yourself with other believers, do so to try to encourage them. Just your sheer presence here and singing songs of praises, and just a few words, or words of encouragement, or just pray with someone, is of great encouragement, and that's how the body is to function. There is a giving and a taking. There needs to be a humility. Some people are like, man, I'm, I'm good to give, but man, I don't want to receive anything. I don't want anybody to know about my issues or my problems. That actually isn't the humility that Paul had. I want to be encouraged by you, just like I want to encourage you, so that we can grow to the fullness of maturity in Christ. That's what he's after. And so he's saying, I... I cannot wait to see you. And he says, verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. I've wanted to come, but I've been prevented for whatever reason that might be, so that I may obtain some fruit. You see that in verse 13? Among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's saying, I want to come so that God will cultivate fruit. What, what is fruit? Don't be thinking apples and pears. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual fruit. Remember like the fruit of the Spirit? I want to see God through our relationship with Christ, mutually encouraging one another, developing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is spiritual fruit of not only spiritual attitudes, but actions where we're growing that we're being mobilized, that we're taking an interest in others, that the gospel is going forth. We're not playing chicken all the time, but we're actually moving forward. There is righteous deeds, good works that are being established. And fruit is also even the fruit of people coming to know Christ. There's the fruit of praises of lips that Hebrews speaks about where we're worshiping God. I want to come and I want to, I want to obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want to see God continue this work that I've been experiencing as I've been trying to encourage the development of these churches. I want to see them mature. And he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks, speaking of those who are familiar with Greek and Roman culture, they have been educated, they were considered wise, and then you have and to barbarians. This is how they referred to those who were not part of the Roman culture. They'd not been educated and spoke Greek, 
They had not actually um, had the experiences and understood the culture. And so everybody else in the empire, you know what they were called? Barbarians. And it was kind of a derisive term. So it's a barbarian is an onomatopoeic word. And, and, that's, and what that means is it's a word that sounds like what was taking place. So when they would listen to people speak and they weren't speaking Greek, it sounded like this to them. Bar, 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 bar. And they're just like, yeah, you guys are so uneducated, don't speak Greek. You're barbarians. That's what it, it was derisive. I don't understand what you're talking about. It just sounds like blah, 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 to me. So you're barbarians. Paul says, you know what? I don't care if you're a Greek. I don't know if you're highly cultured and well-educated or you're a barbarian. I have come to preach the gospel to you. To you. Whether you're wise or you're foolish, it doesn't matter. This is a gospel for all humanity. And he says, for, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Isn't that interesting? Who's he writing to? Christians, right? But why is he then so eager to preach the gospel? Don't they already know Christ? You see, we got the idea that the gospel is just kind of like, yeah, we believe these truths about Jesus, and it's like our little ticket into heaven. And then we go and do whatever we want. Actually, we never leave the gospel. We keep growing in our understanding of the gospel of Christ, of who he is. We mature in it. We don't want to stay an inch deep. And that's why saying, I want to speak of the fullness of all that God has done. What is the gospel? Just to give you a simple definition, is all that God has done, is doing, and will do through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what the gospel is. And he said, I am eager to explain and to show you the fullness that comes from maturing in this relationship with Christ. And notice what he said, I'm under obligation. Okay, so what does it mean to be under obligation? Like, for instance, if you go take a loan out from the bank for $10,000, you have an obligation to pay that back. You, You need to know that, right? They're wanting their money back. But there's another obligation, and that is that if Let's say I give you $10,000 and I say, I want you to give it to this group of people or to this individual. You are under obligation. Not only are you under obligation to me, but you're under obligation to give it to the people that are intended to receive this gift. And that's what Paul says. I am under obligation. I've received this gift from God. I know what it looks like to be in spiritual darkness and to not know Christ. I've received the gospel and I have to give give this gospel. That's why I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also who are in Rome. And that should help us understand that when you're set apart to the gospel of God, that means that you have a desire to develop the maturity of believers in your life. You know, you would never do this with a baby. You have a brand new baby, like, man, we are so glad you're here, and I hope you get it figured out and get fed and clothed. We'll take, see you later. Would you ever do that? No. We're really attentive. The baby crying. The baby needs food, more clothes, more songs, whatever, right? We're very concerned that that baby grows and develops. Well, God is very concerned that his children grow and develop. And once you believe in the gospel, there's a lot of nurturing that needs to take place. They need to grow. They need to be discipled. They need to mature. That's why Paul is eager to go and to be with these people in Rome. And then let me finally just tell you something else that takes place when you're set apart to the gospel of God. That means that you are going to be declaring the righteousness of God. Those who are set apart to God's gospel are declaring the righteousness of God. And here we find in verses 16 and 17, two verses that you ought to memorize. Because these verses crystallize the thesis of the book of Romans. 
And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. Now, that gospel, that was an exclusive term just for Christians. The prophets spoke of good news, of the coming Christ. Romans had good news. But Paul says, if you want the real good news, it is found in the person of Jesus. And he says, I have great degree of confidence in the gospel. Because why? It is the power of God for salvation. The word power there is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. It literally has strength and the ability to transform a person's life. I am confident of its power to bring salvation to everyone who believes. That word salvation means deliverance or rescue. Um, It could be used of the emperor who is supposed to bring deliverance or rescue. Politically, militarily. It could be used of a doctor who is to bring salvation. They brought healing. But Paul says it is Christ. It is this gospel about Jesus. It's the power to bring salvation. Deliverance and rescue from being lost, from facing the wrath of God, from this willful, sinful disobedience and spiritual ignorance and being involved in just willful self-indulgence to to being lost in a dark world religion. It is ultimately a rescue from the penalty of sin. All of this is entailed in the word salvation. Salvation is a past salvation. It's a past salvation from the penalties of sin. It's a present salvation from the power of sin in our daily lives. Do you know that salvation, you don't have to keep sinning like you once did because you have Christ. And it is a future salvation where one day we're actually going to be freed from the actual presence of sin because we're going to be fully in the presence of Christ. Is it any wonder that Paul was so interested and so enthused to bring the gospel and to speak of its depths? And who does this gospel for? It's to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. It's to everyone who will simply put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, There's a Syrian bishop from the 5th century. He actually equated the gospel to like a pepper, okay? You're like, whoa, that's interesting. You know, like a pepper. On the outside, you know, it looks kind of cool. You touch it, not a big issue, but you bite into the pepper, and there's a whole other reaction, right, that takes place in your life. I remember when I was uh, on a mission trip with Mike. Uh, Mike, you'll remember this event here. We were in India. We're with Srinivas, Doug Matthews, Mike Harden, myself. After lunch, uh, they bring out this plate of these peppers, and Srinivas wants us all to bite into these peppers, like, together. And, like, I have this little policy, and it's done me a lot of good. When in doubt, don't. And I was like, this is something weird about this. But Mike and Doug, they're men of great faith, and they trusted Srinivas. And I was like, I'm going to take a pass. They all had their, ba- their little peppers. When they, he said, let's do it together on the count of three, I knew that this was going to be bad. And sure enough, one, two, three, they bite into it. And Srinivas is sitting there like, no big deal. I look at my buddies. Here's my compadres, Mike and Doug, and they start crying. One of them says, I can't feel my lips. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I was like, oh, man. Because that pepper has power. It looked really harmless. The gospel. A lot of people say, that's a nice philosophy. That looks nice. Can't, no big deal. But when you truly enter into relationship with Christ, there's a transformation. It literally changes you. It brings about changes of life. And it is a saving faith to everyone who believes. It's not only something you understand intellectually, mentally. It is one that affects your emotions. There is a sorrow over sin, and there is a joy in Christ, and there is a volition where you literally put your will under the will of the master. And he says, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. 
from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And we'll talk more about this next week. But the righteousness that is from God, this is a status that God gives his people who trust in Christ. He literally declares them right. We can understand this word righteousness. Like if you're in right standing with your government or at work with your company, that means that you don't have no issues. Everything's cool, right? You're, you're in right standing. When we place our faith in Christ, he puts us in right standing with him. Now, we, when we proclaim the gospel, we often tell people that, you know, Jesus died and paid the penalty for your sins, and you can be forgiven if you believe in him. And that is 100% right. But did you know that's only half the message? Huh? Did you know that he actually gives, Christ gives his righteousness to his people? He not only saves you from your sins, but it's not like he just leaves you there like, okay, you made a big mess of your life. I'm like wiping this all away. You're starting over now. You're cleansed from your sin. Actually, it's like we're on death row and we deserve death. And Christ not only rescues us, saves us, but then at the same time, he gives us like the Congressional Medal of Honor. We're celebrated as like heroes. He gives us his righteousness from his perfect life, and it is actually imputed onto us, meaning that God never sees us in our sin. He always sees us united with Christ. It's not like he's tolerating us. He sees us completely righteous because God has taken Christ's righteousness and put it in our account on our life. That is something worth celebrating. And so he says, God has revealed his righteousness. And not only is it the righteousness from God, but it is a righteousness done by God. We see that God actually sets right what has gone wrong in creation, and he does so through the sending of his son. We see the righteousness of God. We see how much he loves us and how perfectly right he is by the work that he's done in Christ. And so Paul says, he gives this quote from Habakkuk 2.4. He says, it's all about faith, from one faith to another person's faith, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Do you want to live? Honestly, if you want to live, you'll do so by faith in Christ. And it's, it's not a one-time belief. It is an ongoing lifestyle of believing in Christ. That's where life is found. And that's what this book is all about. Let me give you just a very simple overview of the book of Romans. This is a book that you're going to want to have a good handle on. And I'll give you it in six words that you could always remember what the book of Romans is about. The theme is the transforming power of trusting in Christ and his gospel. And let me give you a simple outline. It, first word, exaltation. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. It is the glory of Christ and his gospel. The next word, condemnation. The need for Christ and his gospel because all are under sin. That's chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. Third word, justification. The gift of God's righteousness through the gospel. This is chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5. The next one is sanctification. After you're declared right with God, God is now setting you apart, and there's a process of growing in holiness. That's what you find in chapter 6, 7, and 8. What is God going to do with the Jews? Are all the Jews believing right now? Well, he addresses those issues in chapters 9 through 11 with restoration. There's going to be a day where the Jews will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and he describes that. And then finally, beginning in chapter 12, all the way through the end, chapter 16, is transformation. It is the developing lifestyle that comes from knowing Christ and his gospel. Now, you guys seen that ad about the Marines where it says, earned, never given. You see that? 
familiar with that? And let me tell you, first of all, if you're a Marine, thank you for your service and for all that you've done and, how you, and all that you put yourself through and the hard work and the discipline and how you've served our country. You deserve and you have earned that title and you've earned our respect. You can call yourself a Marine. We're very familiar with that. The gospel is exactly the opposite. It is given, never earned. You can never earn the salvation. It is something that God gives to us in Christ. And it is the gospel of God that reveals the power of knowing Christ. That's what this book is about. And it has transformed people for now 2,000 years. And my prayer is that God has continued that transforming work in us as we study it out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing book of the Bible. And for someone who has come here today who's never put their trust in Jesus, and now they see him, fully man, fully God, resurrected from the dead, the Son of God with power. Lord, would you right now help them turn from their sin, confess that as wrong and not in keeping with you, and trust now in Jesus for life, forgiveness, and to receive his righteousness. And Father, for us who know you, may we grow deep in the gospel of Christ. May you accomplish your work and have your will in our lives. May we literally live differently. That if an atheist group should visit us or engage us in our life, they would find that indeed Jesus transforms lives and he is very relevant to our culture. And so we pray these things as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.